Radio Mano Papachango. Coming to you from the Estrella Blanca, the sailboat that I'm living on this month in uh, Las Palmas, Gran Canaria. Thanks for checking in. Uh, this is a very interesting episode with a young woman named Riva Winter, who is a friend of mine. Her parents are friends of mine. And if you are an aficionado of Tangentially Speaking, you will know Riva's grandmother, Ginger who was uh, my guest back in, uh, I don't know, maybe 100 episodes ago. I'll put up a link, um, obviously, on on my site, on the page dedicated to this podcast. I'll put up a link to the Ginger episode. Ginger is Riva's grandmother. You may remember Ginger was uh, working at NASA. She's like a theoretical mathematics genius. Uh, she, I think developed a communication system on one of the, I think the first satellite that landed on the moon. And she also um, designed some of the systems in the Landsat uh, satellites that map the surface of the earth. So Riva comes from, and Riva's mother is also a super genius, and her father is a super genius. They're all just fucking geniuses. It's amazing. And they're also really, really nice people. So she comes from a long line of smart, cool people, and you'll hear it all distilled in her. She's finishing her PhD in marine biology um, with Andrew Baker, who was on the last episode of this podcast. So this is sort of a continuation of the last episode, which I hope you enjoyed as well. Uh, seems appropriate. You know, I'm recording this on a lolling sailboat right now, which is uh, very cool, very nautical. And uh, so, yeah, this is the theme is the ocean, the rolling sea. couple of minor updates for you. It looks like uh, I'm moving ahead with this van idea, but unbeknownst to me, the 4x4 Sprinter van was only introduced into the American market last year. So I'm probably not going to be able to get a used one since probably nobody's selling them. They just bought them if, they, if they're out there. But uh, So that's going to cost a little more than I expected. I thought I'd save 20, 25 grand or something by getting a used one. But I really want the 4x4 because I want to be able to take it out on the beach and take it up off-road, you know, to places where uh, I can get away and not have to worry about getting back to the to the road. I got the uh, – I had that Honda Element that I was driving around. I managed to get that stuck on the beach once, which was a very uh, unhappy moment. So I definitely want the 4 by 4 So, yeah, it's going to cost some more. But, hey, if you want to help me pay for that 4 by 4 check out Patreon.com. Uh, that's, you know, about that. I've been talking about how Fund What You Love is is going under. So if you support the podcast through Fund What You Love, please find a moment in your busy day to uh, 
set up something on Patreon if you want to keep supporting uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. Fund What You Love will be, I think, maybe this is the last month, and you don't need to worry about canceling it. He's shutting down the whole site, so your payments will be automatically canceled there. But if you do want to continue to support the podcast, uh, patreon.com, just search Tangentially Speaking or my name and you'll find it. Um, I really appreciate it. Also, those of you who are buying things through my Amazon portal, I really appreciate that as well. Very cool to have some funding supporting the podcast. Um, I think I mentioned I'm flying up to Amsterdam to spend a day with Wim Hof which I'm really looking forward to. And that's the kind of thing I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be able to do if, if I weren't getting some sort of funding from the podcast to make, to make it worthwhile to pay for tickets and hotels and all that kind of stuff. So thank you to all of you who are supporting the podcast uh, in whatever way you're doing it, even if it's just listening and telling your friends and enjoying it. That, that counts as much as anything. Now, here's a little information for you. I got an email from a guy with the amazingly cool name of Wyatt Custer. And uh, he says, one thing that might interest your listeners who want to escape the matrix or the rat race is to look into work camping. My wife and I are working at a large RV camp that includes cabins and tent sites here in Moab, Utah. Beautiful place, Moab, Utah. In exchange for office work, maintenance and groundskeeping, we have a spot with full hookups, water, sewer, electric and hourly pay. It's our first time doing this after selling our house and purging our belongings. I'm just 35, but I needed a break from a stressful job that afforded travel, but I totally lost interest in. For your listeners, if you get a chance, there are quite a few websites out there with job postings. About half offer full hookups only, and the other half offer that plus a salary. It's a great way to travel the country and live with very few expenses. So there's a hint for you, those of you who are who are wondering, how the hell do I do this? How can I get out of the rat race? How can I escape? Well, there's a way. There's always a way. And maybe I'll see you at one of those RV campsites because God knows I'll be checking into those occasionally myself once I get the, the podcast mobile out on the road. Okay, without further ado, I'd like to just uh, bring bring Reva in here and get right to this conversation. Um, no need for you to listen to me yammering on anymore. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with the beautiful, brilliant Reva Winter, and uh, hope everything's going well in your world. I'll check in with you in about a week. Ciao, baby. gentlemen i'm in coral gables coconut grove area i think donald trump has a house around here somewhere uh we were uh I have, i'm with my friend reva winter who is it's not winters right it's winter one winter it was, singular it was edgar winter 
Do you ever know those? The Edgar, the, the what were they called? The, the Winter Brothers? They were two, I think Winter wasn't their real name because they were two albino twins or ah. something. Well, they had a band in fitting, the 70s. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, anyway, you're not albino. <laughs> no. <laughs> and you're not in a band from the 70s. Uh, we, full disclosure, we uh, got about two minutes into this, and then one of my microphones melted down. So let's just say it all again and pretend it's fresh. Okay. This will be like acting. Right. Yeah. So, Reva, <laughs> you've got one of those jobs that um, kids fantasize about having when they grow up like fireman and astronaut and forest ranger yeah and stripper was, was that the joke <laughs> it was yeah no um yeah when i when i tell people that i'm a marine biologist uh, i often hear that that's oh that that was my dream when i was a little kid right and and it is sort of cliche but that that's it's what I've wanted to do since I was seven when I first went to SeaWorld, you know, SeaWorld, the sea. evil SeaWorld. But, but in, in my case, I, I don't particularly have have a strong opinion about about that, although um, I don't I don't really like the idea of holding large, intelligent mammals in a small amount of water. But right. um, for for me as a child, it was a really um, life-changing experience because mm. ever since that I've I've been fascinated by the ocean um, I've always lived near the ocean I grew up just outside of Los Angeles in Topanga Canyon and um, yeah I, I I think it's it's so unexplored and it's it's a it feels like a part of me so being a marine biologist has always been the, the ocean the feels goal. like a part of you or the yeah. career? The ocean feels really? like a part of me. Yeah, the sound of waves hmm. falling asleep. Does that connect to your femininity, do you think? Is there a... Because, I mean, the tidal thing and the menstrual... Sure. I mean, it. you know, the ocean's always a she, right? I, I don't know if there are any yeah. languages that refer to it as a he. Oh, that's that's a good point. I mean, yeah. The moon is always a she, except for except German. Except for German. Yeah. <laughs> What's up with those freaky Germans? I know it's so weird. Who and could, who the could sun, ever say is, that? the sun is is female. Really? Yeah. I'm. They're I'm, just being difficult. I'm trying to learn German right now. Oh, are you? Yeah. It's it's a it's a slog. <laughs> ein Schlag. Oh yeah, I have fun es with ist it. Ein Schlag. Well, I, I love language, mm. um, and and I. I'm a grammar nerd. In, I know a, you're a grammar nerd. You make me nervous. I'm, I'm nervous <laughs> to even talk around you and your mother, your grammar Nazi mother. Yeah. Well, I come by it, honestly. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, Riva's a friend of mine since I don't know when. I guess we got to be friends 2011. Yeah. Your parents are good friends of mine. And uh, Cassie and I rented uh, an apartment from them for yeah. a while. So we got to know them pretty well. And their lovely dog Bella the beautiful Bella yeah. yeah so and you did a podcast with my grandmother that's right yes this is a gener I think this is the first generational podcast episode yeah. we've ever done right ginger episode I have no idea what but don't remember it was back a while yeah. it's probably in before 100 yeah yeah 70 yeah. something maybe yeah so yeah, so I come by the science honestly also yeah ginger was what an astrophysicist or something yeah, she got her degree in mathematical physics right and then 
um, worked on designing satellite Satellites, parts. Satellites, right. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, if I remember correctly, she was basically in charge of one of the satellite programs. Not, not the whole program, but she designed... She designed the communication systems for the surveyor satellite that first right, landed surveyor. on the moon, and then oh. she also designed the the camera system on Landsat, which That's was, what I was yeah, the first of. Earth Resources satellites. Right, they sort of go around and, and take pictures, map the yeah, whole planet exactly. surface, multispectral imaging system. Unbelievable, yeah, she's great. And your mom, I should have your mom on sometime and, and totally, close the circle. I totally agree. Although I, I've never asked her because her job requires so much discretion. She was a, a entertainment lawyer, right? Uh, she, she had business litigation. Uh, but I'm sure, I'm sure she would have some stories. You think there are a few she could tell us? Yeah, well, yeah. and she has continued doing and learning interesting things That's true. since she's, her retirement. Yeah, so. she's a force of nature. Anyway, back to you, yeah. back to the third generation here. So you uh, you were saying earlier before the, the microphone melted down that your first um, career aspiration was to be a gardener? Yeah. When I was, Did you I want to be four. Mexican as well? Because in L.A., that's pretty much that part, part for the course. Yeah. No, uh, I just always have loved plants. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you grew up in that house in Topanga, yeah. right, that I know, which is surrounded by forests. Yeah. Uh, so you listen to this podcast, so is it kind of weird for you to be on this side of it? Yeah, it's a little surreal. Definitely. Now you know how I feel. <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that you listened to it, and yesterday we were talking about, I don't know, what I mentioned something, and you were like, oh, yeah, I heard, yeah. I heard you say that. And I'm like, well, that was just last week. So Yeah, w lots of my <laughs> conversations these days start with, well, I was listening to a podcast, and, mm -hmm. um, and it's really you that I have to thank for that. Because I got you into it. Yeah, yeah, it's when you started tangentially speaking, I think I came in when you were in at number episode number 15 or something and yeah. yeah I just I've gotten into the whole podcasting world after right. that and you're telling me yesterday you have a job that allows you to just zone out a lot because you're doing lab work you're you know monitoring things and taking measurements and stuff where you can afford to be listening to a conversation while you do the work right so I I do run a lot of experiments in the lab and I'm working with live coral and that requires maintaining those live coral, and often that means cleaning them with a toothbrush. <laughs> and, uh. um, and when I'm not in the wet lab maintaining the experiments, I'm in the dry lab um, working with genetic tools, and that involves a lot of pipetting. And <laughs> so if I'm sort of mindlessly pipetting small volumes of liquid back and forth, yeah. uh, it allows me to... Um, do Plus, you ride do something your bike to work every day and back, which is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. It's a beautiful ride over the bridge. Yeah, it sure is. So you're, you're, where are you studying? I'm at the University of Miami at the Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science, which is a bit of a mouthful, so yeah. we call it Rasmus. 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 Yeah. Okay. And so that's out on Virginia Key. So we're out on an island. The school's right on the water. There are definitely worse places to go to work. That's beautiful, yeah. yeah. And you're a couple of months from finishing your PhD. That's the plan, yeah. Don't want to curse it. Yeah, I'm, so I'm due to finish in November. It's a five-year program. So I moved to Miami in August of 2011 mm. and 
have been working on my PhD ever since then. Wow. And so the the plan is you're going to be so let's let's talk a little bit about what it is specifically that you're working on. Okay. Um, I did an interview with Andrew Baker, who's your advisor. Is mm-hmm. that the right term? Um, and his work. Now I know you're working together with him on coral, and you're working on rehabilitating coral. Is that correct? Dealing with the the climate change and issues yeah. that are coming. So. I'm not sure if rehabilitating is quite the right term that brings to mind, you know, injured pelicans being re-released to the wild. Right. Um, we study the coral algal symbiosis. Right. So just a little bit of background. Corals are animals and they have a symbiotic mutualistic relationship. So both partners benefit under... The under, coral and the algae. Exactly. Right. Under... Um, normal environmental conditions. Both partners benefit from this association. And the algae are single-celled dinoflagellate algae that live inside the cells of one of the tissue layers of the coral. And that's why corals are in, tend to be in shallow sunlit waters because these algae photosynthesize uh, and produce simple sugars and give that energy to the coral host, almost like rent. And what do they get in return? They get a stable spot in the light. They get Mm. a safe place to live. They get nitrogenous waste from the coral host. Uh It's a very tight cycling of nutrients between the partners. Uh And so we study this relationship and how it breaks down under stress. Um, it's It's in the news everywhere right now. We're in the midst of the third global mass bleaching event. Um, and bleaching is the breakdown of this symbiotic relationship. Right. So when you remove the algae, what you're left with is white skeletal material, I guess. Yeah. So, so all the details of this process haven't been entirely worked out, but basically bleaching is a, a generalized stress response. Um, in, in the case of global climate change, it tends to be heat that's causing the problem. So when temperatures get too hot, it's the algae themselves actually that get stressed and they start producing reactive oxygen species. And that eventually overwhelms the coral host's ability to um, detoxify. So they don't have enough antioxidant capacity at some threshold level and they start um, they start kicking the algae out, basically. So they, they lose their symbiotic algae. And as they lose the algae, they lose lots of the pigment that gives them color. So the tissue mm. becomes quite clear, and you can see the white coral skeleton beneath it. Right. So that's why we call it bleaching, because they look like they've been bleached. But you know, it has nothing to do with actual bleach itself. Right. And the coral polyps themselves die? If they're unable to recover their populations of algae in time, they, they will die. Um, so that's, that's really the focus of my work. I study the recovery process and what factors influence how the algal symbiote community reassembles, mm. both, both how quickly that happens and with what members, because it turns out that these algae are really highly diverse. So right. when they were first discovered, they, the scientists thought that it was just a single species. They called it Symbiodinium microadriaticum. And 
that's because they all look the same. They're just these sort of boring yellow-brown orbs, and they're not morphologically distinct. And they're all just floating around in the ocean. They are free-living, and they're, they are in the water column, but there's also a, it seems to be a large pool of them that live in, in and on sediments in, in, um, in reef habitats. Uh -huh. um, and corals, a healthy coral is, is expelling up to tens of thousands of them a day, just regulating the population. Um, and I don't remember <laughs> where I was before uh, we... Well, they thought that they were all one species. Right, right. right. And so it wasn't, until, um, it wasn't until the advent of genetic techniques that we were able to determine that actually there's a huge degree of diversity within this group. And actually within the genus Symbiodinium, there's more diversity than within some, um, some much higher orders of other types of algae. Mm. So um, we, call, we call groupings within Symbiodinium clades of closely related types. There are, some, there are some groups of scientists who are working on naming species of symbiont, um, of these, of these uh, Symbiodinium. But we're not we're not so focused on that. There there are a couple though that we're particularly interested in. One is uh, we call it Symbiodinium D1A. So it's within clade D, um, and it's D1A in the Caribbean, and it 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 seems to be quite heat tolerant. Mm. And so we've found that when we purposefully bleach corals in the lab and allow them to recover, especially if we let them recover under high, slightly higher temperatures, it promotes their recovery with this thermally tolerant symbiont type. And then when these corals are challenged with heat again, they don't bleach. Mm, so it's hardier in a in Exactly. A so it seems that hosting um, some of these thermally tolerant types raises the bleaching threshold right. of these corals, which is really important. I mean, it can be up to a degree and a half to two degrees Celsius. Mm, that's a lot. So, yeah, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, that is a lot. So is the idea that you would seed waters with this bacteria, not bacterium, um, algae? Algae. No, right. th this algae. This Symbiont type is abundant on reefs already. Right. So there is there is some interesting discussion happening about how much intervention, human intervention, there should be in conservation. Yeah. And so we're not suggesting that you introduce something that's not already there. Right. D to to interrupt myself for a moment, there was a paper that came out recently that. Um, presented some evidence that seems to point to this symbiont type, D1A, actually being an invasive from the Pacific, maybe coming through the Panama Canal in ship ballast water or something, really? just because there's, there's not very much diversity of this type. So it seems like it's one type that has been introduced more recently. Um, so th that aside, whether, whether it's invasive or not, it's, it's here. Right. Um, and corals that recover from bleaching with this type seem to have a much higher bleaching threshold. The, the, does their behavior change? Behavior might not yeah. be the right word, but like, do they do the coral reefs grow faster or slower, or yes. assume different shapes or something? So there does seem to be um, 
there ha a growth trade-off has been found mm. um, that corals that are hosting this symbiont type can grow up to you know 33% more slowly than mm. than the same type of coral hosting a different symbiont right, type. Right. Uh, but most of that work has been done at cooler temperatures, and a paper that came out of our lab um, relatively recently showed that when corals hosting one of these two symbiont types were grown at um, increasing temperature, the growth trade-off disappeared. So at 26 degrees Celsius, there was this you know, 34% decrease in growth. But by the time you were growing the corals at 29 degrees Celsius, that growth trade-off had disappeared, which makes sense because it's a more thermally tolerant symbiont type. So that's its natural that it's, niche. It's clearly what it prefers. Right, yeah. right. Interesting. So can, can the same symbiont um, be hosted by different types of coral? Yeah, so this is a that's a really interesting question, and there's quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of debate in mm. the scientific community about how flexible corals are in their in their ability to associate with different symbiont types, and also whether exactly the same symbiont type is hosted by multiple corals. Right. I think it depends at the, at the genetic, it depends on the genetic markers that you're using to look at who is there, you know? The, yeah. Because when you, when you get down really finely, um, it does seem that there are, like a whole, a whole coral colony can be populated by a, a clone, a clonal strain of one symbiont type. That seems to be pretty specific, but if you zoom out a little bit, you know, symbiont type C2, which is a, a much um, broader scale identification of that symbiont type, might be found by multiple in multiple coral hosts. Right. Now I notice you're saying symbiont type, not symbiont species. Yeah. Because. What the hell is a species? <laughs> I should know by, by this point, but I asked um, Franz Duvall that question, and he sort, of, he sort of blanched a little bit, and he said, oh, never ask a biologist what a species is. Yeah, I feel like my blood pressure just oh, really? ra raised a little bit when you asked me that question. Because um, it's one of those things we all, I mean, I always thought that the species was the two individuals couldn't reproduce successfully. Right. So that's, I think that's what people call the, the biological species definition. Right. But these things are asexual reproducers, right? Well, that's another really good question. It seems oh. as though symbiodinium has a sexually reproducing free living stage. Oh. Right, so the the symbiont a free pool, living, right? Exactly. Stage. So We've the, all been there. <laughs> the symbiont pool that's you know in the water column and in the sediments uh -huh. might be reproducing, but it's not clear whether they're doing so in the coral. It seems that when they're in the coral, they're in sort of an insisted stage. They don't have their flagella. They're not moving around. It's They've like settled a, down. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a free-flowing party time. Yeah, and, and whether... What's that thing called that the, the, um, the Amish do? Rumspringen. Yeah. It's <laughs> a Rumspringen. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but whether... I, I mentioned that corals are constantly regulating right. their symbiont populations. Right. 
I would be curious to know whether those you know, perfectly viable symbionts that they have released, whether those metamorphose into the free living stage and, and right. re-enter the sexually reproducing pool or right. what happens to or them. Or if they I'm move sure. over to another coral colony yeah, and, and exactly. bring some STDs along <laughs> with them or something. Yeah, so it was, it was thought for a long time that corals, uh, they, they picked up symbionts from the environment when they were babies and then never, like they, the, it was thought that they could not acquire symbionts as adults. And some of the early work that I did along with one of my colleagues who has since graduated already, uh, Paul Jones, showed that bleached corals were picking up symbionts from nearby healthy coral hmm. as as you know bleached adults during early recovery right. but that in the long term it was more the temperature under which they were recovering that determined the final composition of the community right okay so you're talking when we're talking about corals you're talking about the corals that look like hands coming up you're talking about brain corals you're talking about corals that look like sponges and I mean is this is a sun what's it called a sand dollar is that a coral no, no it's a shellfish or something I the hell is that? think it might be an echinoderm an echinoderm uh, maybe <laughs> related to sea stars and urchins uh, okay the sea urchin, which uh, Charles Darwin um, studied, mm -hmm. he was he was the world's leading expert on sea urchins, has the largest penis relative to body size of any animal. There you go. Lucky urchins. Not necessarily. I mean, they're like 17 times their body size. They're, they're bizarre. It's almost like a little body attached to a penis, you know. Do they like pump it up or? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. I just. It's just one of those facts I read somewhere. You know, you read it. If you read enough books about Charles Darwin, yeah. that gets dropped. Was a he lot. particularly interested in urchin penis? I don't think so. I don't even know if it's something he studied. You know, I mean, he studied the urchin right. obviously, but I don't know. He may have been embarrassed by the urchin penis. Because he was kind of squeamish about these mm. things, you know, as we've discussed yeah. ad nauseum <laughs> elsewhere. Um, okay, let's stick with sex for a minute. Coral sex is pretty bizarre, if I remember my David Attenborough special correctly. Isn't there some, like, full moon yeah. when they all ejaculate at the same time? Yeah. It's like a huge... Sea bukaki situation. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the, there are two sexual repro reproduction strategies employed by corals, and what you're talking about is called broadcast spawning. So that's <laughs> broadcast, broadcast spawning. spawning. So and that's a mass spawning event. What you're talking yeah. about, and so they tend to mass spawn. Um, uh, uh, like five to ten days, just just like a, a, about a week after the full moon. Ah, so they two went months, dark. Two months in a row. Two months in a row. Like in August and September. Uh huh. And that's it. <laughs> you know. They do it once a year. Yeah. Or twice a year. Yeah, I basically. Guess. Um, and now, are there male and female? Some species have separate genders but lots of them are hermaphroditic and so when uh -huh. they when they release their gametes 
it's a it's an egg sperm bundle and so they release it all together and they do that because the eggs are full of lipids and they're positively buoyant and so they right. start floating up in the water column and eventually um, they they break apart and um, they have evolved to do this mass spawning event so that they don't have to self-fertilize, you know, because that often doesn't work very well. So if all of the conspecifics on a reef go off at the same time, then there's a much greater chance of, of mixing among individuals. Mm. And so after fertilization, it's a, you have a little sort of bean-shaped, tiny little planula larva that swims around in the water column. And the length of time that the larvae are viable varies depending on coral species but some have been found to still be swimming you know m months after they yeah, yeah. And, and so they then they so, uh, can i take you back a step yeah. how so there's the the egg sperm bundle that yeah. floats up to the surface and then eventually from wave action or whatever it right. breaks into the egg and then the sperm right. i guess are they released individually or is that still a packet the sperm? Yeah. No, I think that as the egg sperm bundle breaks apart, it's all just kind of... A it all just goes. Okay, soup. so then you've got sperm swimming around. Yeah, and it's a really distinct smell. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I, I This last summer, I saw coral spawning for the first time and, you know, it was... It was tracking tagged colonies to look and see which ones were going to go and, and so try and collect. So you're out at night on a boat? Yeah, yeah, out at night and... Uh, with a you know clipboard and it's it's a lot of work swimming back and forth you know because you have to I, I think I had 15 colonies that I was trying to see and I you we were trying to see whether they definitely went or not just because um, well that's a different study that I that I was involved in looking at how how a bleaching event affected reproductive output in mm -hmm. these tagged colonies right. Um, after recovery because we have you know historical spawning data on those colonies so right. i'm doing the symbiote side of that that work um, so it sounds like a, a bit of a sperm competition so you know potentially yeah absolutely. i mean it could just be purely random but it could also be that there's an awful lot of sperm swimming around and yeah. uh limited number of eggs and the strongest fastest whatever i, I can the sperm I mean, are they seeking the eggs? Can they sense them in the water somehow? Or are they just randomly banging around and some of them happen to hit an egg? That's a good question. I'm, I don't know yeah. the answer. That'd be really interesting to know because they claim that human sperm, um, you know, they used to think that it was just pretty much random, but now they, they seem to think that human sperm are directed toward the egg and then the female yeah. can choose and filter them out and there are all sorts of right. uh, mechanisms. Well, it, it wouldn't... It would make sense if they could sense them. I, 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 that wouldn't right. surprise me. I mean, you get these huge slicks across the surface of the water. It's, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> And then, like, are, are fish coming and eating all this stuff? Yeah, they do, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. That must be quite a scene. It's, it's pretty magical, actually, because you can see the, the polyps start to set. You, you can, when you're looking at the surface... Um, you're holding your flashlight and you know, waving away all the little shrimp that are attracted to your light. And you can see the, the, the egg sperm bundles are kind of pink colored. They're oh, like you can see them with the peachy salmon eye. colored. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, 
I don't know, a couple millimeters oh. in, in diameter. And so you can see the, the polyps that are going to release them start to sort of swell up and you can see this egg sperm bundle under the tissue before it has released. Oh, and then wow. all of a sudden, they, it just kind of pops out of the mouth and then they, you know, the, then the current starts to take them and because they're so gently, positively buoyant, they start floating up like reverse rain. Mm. It's, it's really magical. Was, wow. I got really lucky because it was my first time out and a whole bunch of the colonies went off that night. Wow. All right, I'm not going to make any Barry White jokes here, <laughs> but, but that sounds that sounds like a very surreal and interesting situation to be in. Yeah, yeah, kind of like when the turtles, you know, come up on the beach and lay their eggs. And did you feel like you any invasion of privacy? Probably not. <laughs> no, <laughs> they're not big No, just to just uh, scientific excitement uh, and, and general nerding out about right, it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. So, how did you get into the coral? How did that happen? Was that just like a slot open in the program that you jumped into, or no? Um, as I as I mentioned, I've been really interested in marine biology my whole life, but it wasn't a directed interest. You know, mm. I was never, I, I, I certainly wasn't thinking from the age of seven, I want to study coral algal symbiosis, right. you know. Um, I just knew that I loved the ocean. I started diving as soon as I could, and I, I went to New Zealand and studied dolphins, and um, that was my first time out of the country, actually. Mm. Um, it was when I studied abroad in Australia that I really became much more honed in on corals. Um, As an undergraduate? Yeah. And what was your undergraduate degree? Ecology, behavior, and evolution with oh. a minor in marine science. Oh. Yeah. So Where did you do that? At the University of California, San Diego. Mm. Which also has a big like, yeah, well, ocean, and, ocean. Right. Yeah. And so I, I did research as an undergraduate in, a, in Paul Dayton's lab at Scripps, uh -huh, at Scripps uh, Institute of right. Oceanography. In La Jolla. In La Jolla, and I was studying, you know, clam parasites, nothing very glamorous. Um, but it was it was a really good experience, and um, it, was, it was fun to go out and collect them. But um, after I came back, well, if I back up a little bit, I, we, the program in Australia, a lot of it was there was two classes, and the, the majority of it was marine science right. related. And um, we went out to the Great Barrier Reef, and, and I, I had all these questions when they had a couple lectures on, on the coral algal symbiosis. And I was like, well, what about, what about this? And the answer was, we don't know. And then I'd say, well, what about, what about you know, how the the nitrogen cycling and you know the, i don't remember my specific questions but the answer kept coming back that's a good question we don't know and i i just got really enthused about it and then started looking for coral related graduate programs and actually the first year that i applied i didn't really know how to play the game and I didn't quite realize that you needed to really pursue professors ahead of time. And uh -huh. so I just kind of applied to programs my first, my first round without having sort of targeted specific people, mm -hmm. and I didn't get in anywhere. And so I 
worked for a year after I finished my undergraduate degree at Scripps on a choral related project and then applied again the next year and at that point also my CV was much stronger and I did it right that time mm -hmm. and so I got four interviews and I picked Miami. All right, great place. Yeah, and you, you said earlier you go out about once a month you're out on the water. Yeah, and we're going out next week also nice. to collect. Yeah, yeah we have a, a field project, um, just sort of a seasonal monitoring of tagged colonies. So there's a nearby reef. We It's a 20-minute boat ride maybe to get out there. Hmm. Um, and we tagged a whole bunch of colonies, you know, hammering tags into the substrate next to the coral yeah and we go out and just try and find as many tags as we can and take a small biopsy and then we can we can store those samples um for years really and at some point we're going to go back part of one of my chapters is going to be looking at um, this time series for two of the species that we've been collecting from. See what's what's happening as the water changes. Yeah, what's happening with the symbiont community as as the seasons pass and, and as water temperature changes and as light changes and and as we go yeah. through these bleaching events. Right. Andrew, your your advisor yesterday said something about how there was there were corals that are basically at the bottom of the sea almost mm. and and don't really use light the way we imagine. Most corals must. Are there corals in the Arctic or the Antarctic, or are they pretty much temperate or tropical? No, those those deep corals that he mentioned, they're, they're pretty widespread, yeah. but they grow very slowly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's partly, it's this symbiotic relationship that allows them to be so successful um, and, and create these enormous structures that we have in the tropics because it's this tight cycling of nutrients and this symbiotic relationship with these algae that allow them to, to grow as quickly as they do. And that being said, it is still very slow growth. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's the average growth of a coral reef or of a, of a piece of coral? Uh, that depends a little bit, well, on, on a whole bunch of things, but it's also on growth form. So the branching corals tend to be much more quickly growing like maybe two centimeters linear extension a year. Yeah. Um, but the mounding corals that are sort of um, expanding in all directions slowly can right. be as slow as a couple millimeters right. a year wow. in, in sort of. And there's nothing alive inside it, right? It's just the surface. Well, it depends what you mean by so let's nothing. Take a, <laughs> I mean, the, the, yeah. coral, the, coral, um, the coral animal itself as I think I mentioned to you yesterday, is, is just like a thin veneer of living tissue on top of its skeleton that it's been growing since it settled. So if we go back to the, right. the reproduction and life cycle of the coral, the, upon fertilization, there's this little planula larvae that swims around and it cues into various things you know and um, on the reef um, I think it's primarily chemical but they they also see color they it was um, discovered by a scientist named Ben Mason who also went to Erasmus but who graduated before I before I uh, arrived here um, he was doing some work with settling larvae on, on tiles and it was a total accident but this is partly why science is so awesome mm. he had zip ties 
in the buckets that the larvae were settling in, and they were different colors, and he found that they were preferentially settling not on the tiles that he had provided for them, but on the red zip ties. They, they wanted the red color, mm. and he discovered that they have opsins. They can sense, they can sense red, wow. and that's in part because they seem to cue in on this organism called a crustoscorallin algae, which is an, in, an encrusting type of algae that also has a, a calcium carbonate um, structure to it. Right. And it's, a re it's red. It's a pinkish red purple uh -huh. color. And they seem to really like certain species of this CCA, we call it. Um, and so this larvae cues in on these, on these chemical cues and finds this place that it wants to settle. And then it metamorphoses into a little, the first polyp. So it looks like a small anemone, you know, with little tentacles. And, and then it starts asexually reproducing from there. And so all of the polyps, all of the mouths that you see on a coral colony are genetically identical. And when you say coral colony, what does that denote? Uh, I mean, does it, I mean, if you are swimming by and you see a big piece of coral, that's yeah. all one colony. Yeah. If, if it's all one thing, right? Right. Not a whole reef, which is made up of many colonies. Right. 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 And it's the slow sort of incremental growth, settling of new corals, growing, cementing, the encrusting algae. It's, right. it's this slow growth that creates a reef. The, and the, the, how does it start? What's the, there's a rock. And then what's the first coral there? It's just one of those larvae swimming around and it, it lands. You mean, how does a reef start? Yeah. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'm Re reefs are sort of, they, they sort of build on each other. Exactly. So, that's so, so the, what would the, be def the, first? Well, the, the definition of a reef is something along the lines of a biogenic, so built by life, mm. biogenic structure that is, has topographical relief and is wave resistant and is built in situ. So it's built in place. Right. So you can have an oyster reef also. There are no floating reefs or anything. No, exactly. Right. No. So, um, so they are where they are. They are where they are. are they They're built by underwater? living organisms. Are they always underwater, or are there are there tidal reefs that are, you know, when the tide's low, they're exposed. There are some coral reefs that live in in, or there are there are some corals that live in in tidal zones. But I'm not sure that you would say that 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 piece of the reef that gets exposed is a reef that's separate from the rest of it, right? right. So you get these. There, you get these massive structures sort of fringing on atolls and things like that. So that might be the the hind reef, and then you get the reef crest, and then the fore reef. There's a whole sort of okay. landscape ecology, and you find different species in different places. Because you said sun messes them up, right? The polyps don't like sun. Um, well, it's a delicate balance, right? Because I mean, the, direct the, sun. Yeah. So yeah. the algae that they rely upon obviously require light because right. they're photosynthesizing. But yeah, the the sun, just like for us, can be 
a little too harsh sometimes. You and said so something they have yesterday to, in the lab about like a sunscreen. Was there some natural? Yeah, so it seems mucus like mucus or something. Yeah, so corals produce a mucus, a mucosal layer that hosts a whole a whole assemblage of uh, microbes that are really important to the health of the coral. And they've found these they call them mycosporine-like amino acids that can act as a, as a sunscreen, like a UV mm. blocker. And the coral host itself produces. Um, fluorescent proteins that reflect light away. Are there bioluminescent corals? Um, not, not in the strict sense of the word bioluminescent. So that that means like producing light. And as far as I know, corals don't actually produce their own light. They fluoresce under like under like a blue light, right. that, that green really pops out on some of them. Right. But that's a green fluorescent protein that is reflecting back mm. the light that it's getting. Mm. It's not producing it itself. Right. Do, are there any predators? Does anything eat coral? Sure. Yeah, fish, fish, some fish, really? some parrotfish species are coralivorous. No, there's coralivorous. There, there, are, <laughs> there are snails, some mollusks. So eat they corals. just like crawl along and suck the polyps yeah. out of their little shelf or whatever yeah. it's called really yeah so they must have defensive mechanisms then well they're they're corals are cnidarians so they're in the same group as um jellies so, cnidarians yeah so uh, i thought that was from game of thrones no. it's not the guys on the horses no. the cnidarians the the uh that word comes from the word nidy it starts it starts with a c but you don't pronounce it it's a c n right uh-huh. um and that's the term for the stinging cell itself which interestingly enough has a it's it's imagine like a cup with a harpoon inside of it on a on a thread like rope that has a lid on it and the lid has a, a little hair trigger and the reaction time between the hair trigger and the harpoon being deployed is the fastest known biological reaction. Really? Yeah. The so fastest cool. known biological reaction. It's That's so an cool. interesting category. <laughs> so what? So how fast is it? And we're talking about nanoseconds, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And the so some some people some people reaction. who study corals end up becoming kind of sensitive to certain species in particular. I mean, our skin is thick enough and their nidocytes, their stinging cells are small enough that they're not really hurting us. But sometimes you can get kind of like irritated. Really? Yeah, with some species in particular. Huh. So are some more toxic than others? Or is it just an individual allergic response or something? Yeah, so it's, it's some people seem to be more sensitive than others, for sure. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So, uh, what's the job market like for a marine biologist? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, that's the problem with great jobs. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to do them, and it's hard to get a gig. Yeah. Well, in 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 general, we're producing way more PhDs than there are. T- tenure track positions available so most of the jobs are in academia well no (laughs) i mean the 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 jobs are in academia are getting more and more difficult to come by just because we're we're churning out eager young phds Uh and then so i'm i 
I don't know exactly what I want to do uh, yet. So we had this discussion yesterday. Everybody's always asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And mm. I wanted to be a marine biologist. And right. I, the question of what you want to do is is a very different one, it turns out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, it's like I, I want to be married. To whom? Wow, well, hadn't yeah. thought about that. Right. Yeah. So uh, I, I love science, and I like research mm -hmm. and I like asking questions and um, and trying to find answers that make sense or even that, that don't necessarily um, so I think that I would I would like whatever my career ends up being I, I think I would like it to continue being in science um, so this is a good a good opening to talk about what I am going to be doing next. Um, Andrew, my advisor, and I won a prize last November um, called the Capsi Inventors Coral Reef Prize. And Capsi is a nonprofit organization, and the Capsi Inventors program partnered with the Frost Museum of Science. That's Miami's like big science museum. And, and they have recently um, closed their old location and are in the midst of, of building this uh, new building. And that, that has been a lot in the news lately because of various funding issues. But mm. um, the construction is back on, you know. Oh, and, so as, uh, as the winners of this inventor's prize, we're going to be doing our science, running these experiments in the museum space. So for me, this is sort of a, a it seems like a tailor-made position because it's, I get to keep doing science and I get to continue this work that I've begun as a, right. as a PhD right. um, and yet I also get to interact with interested public okay. you know? so, so you won't be back in some some room in the no. in the bowels of the museum you'll, no, you'll the, be on display yeah so and you'll the, be in a tank you and Shamu <laughs> in a way I will Free be Riva. you know I think I'm not exactly sure what the layout is going to be but yeah I'm going to have a molecular lab there and people the public are going to be they're going to be by. able to watch watch me extracting DNA and um, maintaining corals and we'll have representative tanks so that they can see the different treatments so it's going to be a, I think a really great introduction to the scientific method for museum visitors and they're going to get to see this I mean, the, it's, it's cutting edge science what we're doing because we've developed some techniques to quantify and characterize the symbiont communities in these corals mm. that really not, not anybody else is doing. And as far as we know, we're the only, the only lab that is sort of actively engaged in manipulating the coral algal symbiosis. As I mentioned, by, by bleaching them on purpose right. and then letting them recover under these different conditions right. to promote this thermotolerant algal type. So the idea mm -hmm. is to 
work with this one species of coral called Acropora cervicornis. It's also called the staghorn coral. And it's a pretty famous one because it's one of two species of coral that was listed under the Endangered Species Act in 2006. Um, and I think 20 more species of corals have recently joined them on that list, but um, this was one of the first two. Right. And because of that, so if I, if I back up a little bit, we've lost between 90 and 98% of the Acropora cervicornis in the Caribbean in the past 30 years. Because of temperature change or shipping? Or? So it's, a, it's an unfortunate series of events, really. There, there were some hurricanes that hit. There's, sort of, there's historic overfishing. There was a major El Nino event followed by another, so massive bleaching, followed by um, a disease that went through and just wiped them out. So it was right. just, they just kept getting hit. Right. And we have continued to have bleaching events huh. and they're becoming more frequent and more severe. The good news is that this is one of the branching species of coral and they grow more quickly, right? So they're a really good candidate for what we call coral nurseries. Mm -hmm or um, like coral gardening, basically. So, and then you release them back into the wild. So kind I of told you rehabilitation. <laughs> yeah, so, so they, they go out and collect um, pieces of wild colonies. Right. And then they bring them back to a protected place, the nursery, and let them grow out. And there's all this really interesting work being done on, on how to get them to grow more quickly. And mm. there seems to be this you know, pruning vigor so that when you cut them, they grow more quickly in the beginning right really? after being damaged. So they, um, they bring them back to the nursery and they're able to generate huge amounts of tissue because this coral is able to grow so quickly, especially under these sort of more protected um, conditions. Mm. And so reef managers already are investing huge amounts of time and money and effort into maintaining the nursery and then into refragmenting the coral, so breaking it up into small pieces again, and then outplanting those fragments back onto the reef right. with the hope that they'll survive and grow to a mature adult reproductive size. But the problem is that once they're back out on the reef, they're, they're subject to all the same sure. environmental stressors that the rest of the reef is experiencing, including right. these thermal anomalies right. that result in bleaching. So the idea that Andrew and I have had is to use similar techniques to what we've already been exploring in the lab with other species and to, we've, we've termed it stress hardening, to, to um, subject these Acropora cervicornis fragments to sort of a, a mild or not overly severe heat stress and get them to recover with these thermally tolerant symbionts before outplanting them into the field. Oh. And so we have a number of ways, um, a number of ideas that we want to explore of how to make this a, a scalable solution to this problem. Was this the invention that won the prize? Exactly, yeah. Oh, okay. So the, the, coral, it, the coral prize was for um, advancing the science of coral reef restoration. 
Right. So our idea is this is this stress hardening to um, make existing efforts more efficient and, right. and more effective in a in an era of global climate change. Right. You know? Right. I wonder, have you, has anyone looked at vibration and the effects of vibration on coral development or growth or health? Because the ocean is so full of vibrations, hmm. right? The sounds and... Sure. No, I'm, I'm not sure that, I mean, that would be really interesting, though, to, to grow coral on, you know, a totally still surface versus like a vibrating plate or something. Or, or like having a speaker under playing Pink Floyd songs, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, I'm sure, or whatever. you know, I'm sure it would affect the density of the skeleton that they would lay down. Right. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah, because it's like what we were talking about last night, how we sort of, you know, we, we by habit limit our investigations to our own sensory inputs right. and forgetting that what's going on is way beyond what we happen to pick up, right? Sure. We were talking about something, I don't know if it was with Andrew or just over dinner, you know, yeah. seeing many colors more than humans do or many, right. you know, much more of the spectrum than than we see. And vibrations are one of those things that I often think about, you know, how it affects other creatures that, in ways that we're not aware of. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, here's, um, I don't want to bring you down, but I did want to ask you about what it's like to be so focused on something that is in such a sad state you know it's almost like i don't know what the word is for a bumblebee expert but you know like these are sad days for people who study bees and right. or pollinators in general or you know people who are glaciologists or you know th there's so many areas in biology right now that are um <clears throat> you know witnesses to to an unprecedented travesty yeah does that is that something that comes up at conferences or are you guys just focused so much on what you're looking at that you don't really step back and think too much about the implications no it it absolutely comes up and i i can't help but think about it because i'm my work is focused on how how they can and how they do recover mm. from a stressor that is is being driven by global climate change right and I have I have good days and bad days in terms of how how hopeful and optimistic I am. Um, the reefs of the future are not going to look the same. Right. But the reefs of today <clears throat> don't look the way they did in the ten set or twenty in, years ago. Not, yeah, yeah, I it's mean, so fast. So, I mean, the the reef that I was talking about that we have tagged colonies at that we visit on a monthly basis. Um, after the bleaching event in the summer of 2014, there was a disease event that went through. And now there are a couple of species of coral that used to be pretty abundant at that reef that are completely gone. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, right. you go to a different reef, they're still there, you know, but it's, it's just a really stark example of of what's happening right now. And of now. course the disease is part of 
the stress, right? I mean, there. I imagine there's an immune response of some sort that gets weakened and they become more vulnerable because they're exhausted from dealing with these other issues. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, and the coral disease would be a whole, a whole another hour. Right. One that I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in, but yeah, that has to do. It seems like it's an imbalance in the coral microbiome mm. that lives on the on the mucus. Um, the the, the microbiome, in the same way that so much is coming out now about how our own intestinal microbiota are so important to right. our health, right. um, it's the same with corals. It's sort of an interesting parallel there. Yeah, the closer you look, the more it just keeps going. Yeah. It's so interesting. So you're you're going to be working in this museum. I think you said you have an 18 month uh, contract for that, mm-hmm. and and then you will see what happens. Yeah. But it seems to me like you would be so good at, uh, you know, continuing to be that link between the public and the the science. Is that something you're interested in possibly pursuing? Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, actually. I, I, as I said, I, I really enjoy the science aspect of it. But I was, I was realizing one day after I had given my second tour you know because we have we have so many corals in the lab and our wet lab looks very interesting people often come by on tours when they're Mm. when they're touring the facilities at the university and i tell them what we're doing and they ask questions and i realized that i was having a lot of fun giving Mm. those tours and and talking to people about what we were doing and why it matters and why it's interesting and I, f- I think it was maybe even the very next day that Andrew asked me if I would maybe consider staying in Miami after I finished. And I was like, maybe why? And then he mentioned this capsize thing and I latched onto it and <laughs> I, it became a, a major focus of mine. And we got through two rounds of proposals and then we they told us we were gonna be in the finals, which was like a two day event, three different presentations to three different types of audiences. It was, oh, so it really is about communication. Absolutely, it's, it's not just about no, what you invented. It was one. The first one was a five-minute presentation to a high school crowd, who then voted on who they thought oh, was the best. And right. then that night, we we did a sort of a trade show style. We had a table and a booth, mm. and people were coming up. And it's at an event called Nerd Night here in Miami mm-hmm. at, a, at a bar. So I was right. talking to the sort of drunken, cheerful general public and giving my spiel <laughs> over and over again. And every time, I, every time I talked about it, I changed something a little bit. And people asked different questions. And, and so I figured out how to communicate it a little more efficiently. Mm. And I, I loved it. And then the next day was the sort of scary formal presentation to the judging committee. And that night they like announced the winner with a drum roll at this big gala. And I was totally tongue-tied accepting the, the award. And, um, but I, I have never, I don't think I've ever worked so hard on anything. And it felt great. Yeah. It felt really so, good. So let's say Ted came to you, you know, the organization, and said, we'd like to give you 12 minutes to do a TED presentation on coral. What, what would you do? What, what would be your message? you got 12 minutes, right? So you, don't, you can't geek out too much. 
oh, I had 12 minutes, I can geek out a lot in 12 <laughs> well, minutes. <laughs> but you don't want to drown them in geekitude, right? I mean, it has right. to be general public stuff. So what would be, I mean, do you have like a, is there a sound bite that you sort of, your go-to sound bite? Uh, I don't think I have a 12-minute long sound bite right now. But <laughs> No, that would be the heart you know, of it. Um, you know, it, it would it would touch on a lot of what we've talked about because my my focus is on this symbiotic relationship, right. and I think that's partly why it's so interesting and why it'll this project will fit really well into the museum space because symbiosis is a fundamental property of life. Exactly, and that's and we've got a symbiotic relationship with coral. In a sense, because without coral, you lose the fisheries. Without fisheries, you know, it's it's all interrelated. Yeah, it's all it's all a part of everything else. Yeah, yeah, and so are we. Yeah, and somehow we need to recognize that. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Reva. Thank you. You're really you're uh, you're going to be great. I, I hope one thing. You know, I'm always looking for the silver linings, and, you know, I rarely find them. But the one one thing I really hope that happens is if this collapse seems to be accelerating as quickly, I mean, if it is as, as it seems to be, it's happening much faster than anyone predicted, and it's much more extreme and so on, that will focus the attention of the public and they're going to be looking for people to explain what the hell's going on and what we can do about it and you seem to be perfectly positioned academically your age you know everything you're you're in the right place at the right time yeah i i don't want to leave people too depressed um there there are some silver linings you know the fact that that there are these heat tolerant symbionts that allow yeah. corals to withstand higher levels of heat. Um, I just did an experiment where I was trying to bleach a, this this species, Acropora cervicornis, and we, we were expecting them to, you know, practically disintegrate in our hands, and they they didn't bleach for over two weeks. At you know at 32 degrees Celsius, I was like, cooking them, and they were under as high a light as I could stand. And maybe that's a result of their having experienced two warm summers. Mm. You know, so the, there there are these um, there are these sort of bright points here and there, and yeah. and the fact that when you look at some reefs that are pretty remote. Um, they're able to bounce back from these bleaching events when they're not being hit with multiple other local stressors at the same time. Mm. So yeah, I mean, we do need to get it together and start addressing this global problem of, of global climate change. But local people and local communities can make decisions in their everyday lives that can really, in the long term, affect the way coral reefs respond to these global threats there you have it folks think globally act locally yeah thank <laughs> you reva winter uh, i'll put up a link on my webpage to your work but is there is there uh, do you have a web page you have a blog yeah, we have know? a we have a lab website um and um i would encourage people to look up CAPSI, C-A-P-P-S-C-I, as an organization and see what they're up to. And uh, C-A-P-P-S-C-I yeah, dot com or I, org I think maybe. It's, I think it's probably dot org. Okay. And uh, yeah, and people can come 
visit me in the museum in, in January or February of next year. Good. What name the museum again? The Frost Museum of Science. In Miami, in Florida. In Miami, Florida. And is there a webpage for your lab for people who want to see what your work is? Or Yeah, there is. Um, I'm you, not actually. Sh I, okay. If you if you Google Andrew Baker and University of Miami, it'll it'll, it'll come, come up as his okay. lab webpage. Good, and I'll put it on on my webpage as well. Okay. Thank you, Reva. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does, please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called the bright side of the sun i believe you can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com if you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners a good place to do that is on reddit just search tangentially speaking all one word there's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes i drop in occasionally and say hello answer questions whatever uh thanks to shore design t-shirts our garage is full of them my mom has them all organized as only she can julie thank you to julie my mom she'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them everything we've got in stock is from shore design t-shirts in Thailand, and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a 
Dancing to the ground. 